0: Good morning to you all and welcome to part 5 in our series with the theme of knowing God. Today's topic is entitled Choice and Consequences. That is choice and consequences. And it helps us to see our own responsibility in the things that happen to us and around us. Now it is sometimes the case that the importance of a certain topic A certain emphasis of study is not grasped or seen immediately, but it comes gradually with time as the big picture becomes clearer and clearer and things fall more in place. Then we come to see just how important it is and how it applies to everything else. I do hope and pray that this is the case as we continue to explore this topic. To this end, please, dear friends, join me with prayer. At this time, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. Yet we know that we will understand nothing without the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit. So send your Spirit, O God, our Comforter and Teacher. Send him now into our mind and heart to give us understanding, so that we may receive your truth. We ask this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, this is one area of study which is very crucial, yet it is very scarcely understood by many. And for two main reasons. Number one, not many people realize how their personal choices affect their experiences in life and ultimately affect their destiny. Number two, not many realize just how vital the issue of choice is. When it comes to understanding the scriptures, especially when it comes to understanding how God deals with us and relates to us. There are some people who believe that if something happens, God must have wanted it to happen or God must have arranged for it to happen somehow. To put this another way, they believe that because God is all-powerful, then whatever happens in life must have been according to God's will. As a result of this way of thinking, a lot of things happen in the world which God gets blamed for and yet which he is not responsible for and has nothing to do with. For example, when there is some natural disaster like a hurricane or an earthquake, a a tsunami or whatever you name it, your insurance company calls it what? An act of God and charges an additional premium to give you coverage for these things. Think about this. An act of God? Really? This stems from a misunderstanding of freedom of choice and how human choices can influence outcomes and bring about consequences that are quite contrary to the will of God. And it comes from a lack of understanding of really what sin is and what sin does and has done to this world. And also a lack of understanding of the fact that there is such a one as a devil and his role in certain things that happen in the world. So in this study, we will seek to understand how human choices bring about certain undesirable experiences. We bring things upon ourselves and also how God relates to us when these things happen. We're using examples from the scripture just to illustrate certain points. We turn to a few examples in the Bible just to set the tone of what we are looking into today. The first thing we need to see is that not everything that happens in the world is according to God's will. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach us to pray, Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice, thy will be done. Why would we be asked to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven if everything that was happening was already according to God's will? That would be unnecessary, wouldn't it? Do we see these same painful circumstances happening in heaven? Or do we expect or understand or believe that they are? No. God's will is happening in heaven because there is no sin there. And so there is harmony and peace and joy and happiness and rejoicing. But we see pain and suffering and all these things on the earth and destruction and calamities. So God's will certainly is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is why we are asked to pray for it to be. And that is why we cannot believe that because God is all powerful, everything that's happening on the world is as a result of his will. No. We will come away with a thinking of God that would be totally contrary to who He is, and it will make it impossible for us to even feel His love or feel loving towards Him, because these kind of things poison the mind. When God created mankind, He gave explicit instructions for them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. They had everything else that they could possibly desire provided for them, and more. But this was a prohibition given to them for their protection. Because in obeying, they're always safe. In disobeying God's command, they would be separating themselves from their creator. They would be showing that they know more than their creator. And in doing so, they would be opening up a door which would bring in sin and usher in untold woes, pain, suffering, and death upon them and upon their offspring. And that is what we've seen. That is the history of mankind in this earth. That is what has happened. It is clear then that this was not God's will for them. And that is why he gave them that restriction. Yet they eventually listened to and believed the devil, the Bible says, disguised as a serpent, the deceiver. And as a result, they disobeyed God and went contrary to his will and ended up in rebellion against him bringing sin and all its consequences into the world, corrupting the perfect, untarnished beauty of God's creation and corrupting it and turning it into what we see today, wars and bloodshed and oppression and death and suffering and pain and diseases. Man's choice brought that in. That was never God's will. The mere fact that Adam and Eve could go against God's command shows that they were not made as robots. They were given the ability and the freedom to make choices which would either work for their good or work against them. They were free creatures. They were not robots. God had clearly expressed his will and his desire For their continued happiness and prosperity. And this was expressed in the command that he had given them for their own protection. He says, don't do this. That will be bad. Do this instead and you will forever remain happy and problem free. But yet he did not seek to gain their obedience by holding a whip over their back. He required their loyalty and obedience. But in order for obedience to be genuine, it must be freely given. You see, dear listener, love and obedience, they're very similar in certain ways. In other words, they work together. By their very nature, they cannot be forced out of a person. You cannot force obedience. You cannot force a person to love you either. The moment you use force and intimidation and threats, You cannot get obedience. You will get compliance. Yes, they will do what you say, but that is not obedience. That's just merely a compliance which is based on fear. But this is not willingly given, and thus it falls far short of what true obedience really is, or what true love really is. Love and obedience, in order for them to be genuine, have to be given freely. Otherwise, what you get is only a counterfeit of the real thing. Hence, God says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say if you're afraid of me or whatever. Notice the obedience that he requires must be motivated by love. He says, if you love me. So consistently in the scriptures, we see examples that men's disobedience and rebellion was never a part of God's plan but because men chose to follow the evil intentions of their own hearts. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 6-9, to there we read that King Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He goes on to say, because his heart was turned from the Lord, the God of Israel. God had blessed him with wisdom, knowledge and understanding, and great prosperity above all his contemporaries of the day. But you know, there is an old saying that power corrupts and power has corrupted many. Not many people can handle great prosperity in a responsible way while remaining faithful stewards of God's blessings and staying true to God. Prosperity has turned away many from God because they believe they are now self-sufficient and no longer need him. Abraham was one of those who were an exception. He was one of those who were not changed by great prosperity, but many others fail. Abraham remained faithful. So Solomon himself did evil and turned his heart away from God. This was not God's will for him to do that. That was a personal and individual human choice which brought with it terrible consequences. In 2 Chronicles 12, 14, we're told that King Rehoboam did evil because he, notice, he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. That's a personal choice. He chose the path that he took. Similarly, in 2 Chronicles 36, 12 and 13, we find that King Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It says, because he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. We're told also by Jeremiah the prophet that the people of Israel went into idolatry and that this was because they had a stubborn and rebellious heart and had turned aside from God, Jeremiah 5.23. So notice that over and over and over again, we see the words, He hardened his heart against God. He turned his heart away from God. They stiffened their neck against God. They hardened their hearts against him. They rebelled against the God of Israel over and over and over. It is their doing, their choice of the course that they took. And all of this shows that even though God had been pleading with them through the prophets to turn from their wicked ways, they were still free to choose to remain in their wicked ways and to disobey him. He doesn't force them to obey him. But disobedience brings its own consequences. Again in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4 and verse 14, we see where God pleaded with the people. He said, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness, that you may be saved. How long shall your vain thoughts, your evil schemes, lodge within you? So through the prophet, God was seeking to turn them from their wicked ways, which was leading them down the path of destruction but yet the people stubbornly refused God's pleadings. In all of these instances, we see that the evil of disobedience was never a part of God's plan, but resulted from people choosing to resist God's plan by following the evil of their own hearts. As Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, he said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, but the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. To further bring to view how God now deals with us in our rebellious choices, we turn to the book of Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter, and there we find a very revealing account of how God relates to human choice when human choices are contrary to his will. It says in verse 29 of Ezekiel 22, It says, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have oppressed the poor and the needy. Yes, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully, verse 29. Now, let us spend a little time analyzing this text just to kind of see what's going on there among the people at that time. It says the people of the land. The land here refers to Israel, verse 18 of the chapter tells us that. So the nation of Israel had deteriorated into widespread immorality. The scripture says there was oppression, robbery, exploitation of the poor and the needy. They had turned from the path of righteous living and adopted the ways of the heathens. They had embarked upon the path of wickedness and oppression which inevitably leads to destruction. God had raised the prophets to plead with them, to turn back to his ways. But what was their response? They killed the prophets. He raised up other prophets and they did the same to them also. They killed them, stoned them to death. The Bible tells us elsewhere that their cup of iniquity was filling up. Thus they were driving away the presence of God from among them. Now understand your listener. When God's presence is withdrawn from among them or from among any people, what does that mean? It means there would be no protection from their surrounding enemies because who was their protector? God. But what if they no longer wanted him, they drove him away and he withdrew his presence from them? Even the nations around them, which seemed as if they would be friendly or tolerant, even these nations would be inspired by a spirit of the evil one and would turn against them and war against them. God had given the promise of a Messiah who one day would come to defeat Satan the deceiver and restore the lost dominion to mankind. And this Messiah was promised to be born through the seed, through the descendants of Abraham. Satan knew this. He was right there in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had sinned and God first gave the promise of the Messiah to come. And Satan used every opportunity he could to wipe off the descendants of Abraham off the face of the earth so that the Messiah's promise would not be fulfilled. He wanted to prevent the coming of the Messiah. So Israel's safety depended in their continued obedience to God so that God's presence and his protection would remain among them. And so what does the devil do? He would tempt them, corrupt them with adopting the ways of the heathens, going into idolatry and rejecting God. And what was the result? They would thus drive off the presence of God from among them and thus he now, the enemy, would rouse up other enemy nations to seek to destroy them off the face of the earth so that the Messiah's promise would not be fulfilled. So when God sent prophets to warn them, What he was saying, he was saying, look, turn back to me. This course that you have chosen to go on will only lead to your destruction. But when they hardened their hearts and killed his prophets and continued deeper and deeper into their rebellion, eventually they cross a line. A line which now leaves God no choice but to leave them up to their choice, to respect their choice, to remove himself from among them Leaving them to the false gods which they have chosen. These are demonic forces which are intent on bringing destruction upon them. Destruction was inevitable, but God had no choice because they had set themselves in rejection of Him. Now He has to honor their choice by leaving them alone. And so in Ezekiel 22, God sees their wickedness and He sees the destruction that's going to come upon them. And through the prophet, He speaks. Once again, verse 29, it says, The people of the land have used extortion and violence and robbed the weak and have oppressed the poor and the needy. Yes, they have oppressed even the strangers wrongfully. And notice verse 30. And I searched for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. So despite the wickedness, the widespread wickedness that had developed, Notice what God is doing. God is still at this point trying to find a way to save them. He says, I searched for a man, just one person, even one among them, to stand in the gap before me and to make up the hedge that I should not destroy it. But I found none. What does it mean to stand in the gap and make up the hedge? It means to pray, to intercede in behalf of the nation, to pray to God. To give God the right to remain. Because by rejecting him and turning to idols, they were taking away his right to remain. They were saying, look, we are choosing the gods we want. We don't want you. And because God is the one who gave them free choice, at some point, when they crossed that line, he had to say, okay, have the gods you want and remove his presence. But he knows what happens when he when gets to that point. He knows and he doesn't want it to happen. So he's seeking someone to just pray to him to intercede so that he will retain the legal right, the moral right to remain with them even though they're in rebellion, just to keep them and to protect them so that he can turn them around. Understand, dear listener, that the very fact that we're told that God searched for someone to stand in the gap, it means that he desperately wanted to prevent The destruction which was threatening to engulf the people. He wanted to find even one person to pray on behalf of the nation. He was still seeking for that one reason to allow him to remain with them and to protect them from the oncoming danger. But it says he found none. It is evident from the scripture that there are times when God wants to protect and to preserve people from destruction. But he lacks the moral authority to do so. What do I mean by that? Because there is something which prevents him from doing that which his heart yearns to do for them. And that something is human choice. They have chosen to reject him. And he cannot force himself upon those who have fully rejected him. Why? Because he has given mankind the freedom to choose. And thereby, he cannot forcefully infringe upon that freedom because it would mean that he never did give the freedom in the first place. So he has to eventually honor their choice. Even if it is a choice he does not want them to make, they have to be free to make it. He will seek every way to persuade them and to dissuade them from the wrong choices. He sends his angels. He sends his Holy Spirit to woo them. He sends his prophets to plead with them. But when they fix themselves in rebellion, it gets to a point where God has to say, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone, as we read in the book of Hosea chapter 4 and verse 17. So having searched the land and found not one to stand in the gap, not even that one last reason to remain among them, the next verse says, Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, says the Lord God. Here is where it gets tricky for most people. Listen, dear listener, and follow me closely on this. The wording says, Therefore have I consumed them with the fire of my wrath. To all intents and purposes, this seems to be saying that God himself got to the end of his patience with them and turned around and destroyed them. But not so. If that were the case, then who was God seeking to protect them from? protect them from himself, that wouldn't make sense. You see, these kinds of statements, as we read them here in Ezekiel 22, verse 30 and 31, and in other places, these are some of the most misunderstood statements in the Bible. The reality is that it was never God who destroyed them, but that is the way the Hebrew authors wrote. And neither was God in any way responsible for their destruction. He had done everything possible to try to prevent it. But eventually, he had to give them over to the consequences of their sinful choices. The Bible itself shows that when God's presence was removed from them, when he had withdrawn himself, when his protection was removed, the Babylonians came against the cities, the king of Babylon, destroyed their cities, slaughtered many of them, and took others as captives. Now, someone might say, well, maybe God is the one who sent them. But God did not condone any of this either. Because the Bible itself tells us and the prophets themselves show that God in turn condemned the Babylonians for their cruelty in the destruction of Israel and also pronounced that they themselves would be eventually destroyed by other nations because of what they had done. So it is evident, therefore, that God could not have sent them to do this either. Because if that were the case, then in doing their destructive work, they would be obeying him. And if so, why then would he have condemned their actions in obeying him, in destroying Israel? That would make no sense. So we have to understand over and over we see these things in the Bible where it says God poured out his wrath upon them. God destroyed them. But when you read the Bible and you go into it, you realize exactly what happened. Other nations came and destroyed them and God condemned those nations because God abhors violence. So why then does it say that God poured out his wrath upon them? Dear friends, many eastern nations and in particular the Hebrew prophets, they had a peculiar way of writing things when it comes to these kind of events. It was peculiar to their religion and to their culture. It was quite different from the way we would express things in our western culture today in you know, our manner of speaking today. And because many people, and even pastors and Bible teachers, are not aware of this, they read a lot of things in the Bible and take it that when it comes to God's dealings with other nations and with people, as we often see it in the Old Testament, and they think that God is this vicious being. But there is much more to these things than meets the eye. Hosea chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, They shall seek after me, but he had withdrawn himself. So we cannot have a superficial view on these matters because that can only lead to great confusion, which sadly many find themselves in when reading the scriptures, especially the Old Testament. But these things will become clear to you in later studies, dear friends. In fact, one of our upcoming studies will be entitled The Wrath of God, showing what this common statement is actually all about, how it applies, what it means, and we're going to use the Bible to show this and clear up a lot of things that you may have been perplexed about. But for now we will go back to the topic at hand. The nation of Israel had fully given themselves over to the practices of the heathens around them. And despite many years of pleading with them through his prophets, they had chosen to serve other gods. And after reaching a certain point of becoming fixed in their rebellion and rejection of God, God is now faced with the heartbreaking reality of leaving them up to the false gods of their choice. And thus the scripture says God poured out his wrath upon them. That is how it's written. That is what it says. The apostle Paul makes it quite clear in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 28. We're not going to go in detail into that right now. But he makes it clear there that God's wrath does not imply a response of anger and vindictive punishment that is coming directly from God but that rather what it means is that God withdraws his presence from those who have forsaken him and gives them up or gives them over to the choices they have made and the consequences that result from those choices over and over it says he gives them up he gives them over in Romans 1 they have separated themselves from him The word wrath in its original context actually means separation, to be separated from. So because of their sinfulness and their iniquities, they had separated themselves from God, leaving him no option but to remove his presence from among them, leaving them to serve the gods that they chose and to reap the consequences of their own choice. Isaiah chapter 59, 1 and 2, it says... The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither is his ears heavy that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated between you and your God, and your iniquities have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. It is sin that separates from the protector, the preserver, the sustainer. And when there is that vacuum that is left, then the enemy takes advantage of that and brings destruction. But the Hebrews have a peculiar way of saying, God poured out his wrath upon them. That is the way they wrote. It's a figure of speech in Hebrew culture. It's called the Hebrew idiom of permission. An idiom is a figure of speech. But we will get into that another time. We won't get too technical with this right now. But here are a few points that we must highlight from the above text, Ezekiel 22. Number one, as human beings... We can make choices that bring danger and destruction upon ourselves. Number two, God foresees when danger is threatening. Number three, God seeks in every way possible to prevent the coming danger, to turn the people back to their safety net, which is himself, so that he can remain as their protector and their keeper. Number four, but God cannot forcefully intervene in our circumstances. When we turn away from him, despite his pleadings and his entreaties and his, you know, wooing us, when we fix our mind in rebellion and we turn away from him, he cannot forcefully intervene. He cannot force himself upon those who don't want him. Love does not force itself where it's not wanted. Number five, our own choices can create situations which deprive God of the right to intervene and to help us even though he desperately wants to. We can show this in many cases where the Bible says, what can the Almighty do at this point? He wants to do, but he cannot because you have chosen other gods. Now he has to leave you to the gods you have chosen so they can do for you, if they can, what he has been doing for you all along. And it's always the case that they can't because there are no gods but the true God and they end up in calamity and destruction. So our choices can create situation which removes or separates us from God's presence and protection. Number six, prayer, or standing in the gap, making up the hedge, which means praying, interceding with God for help. It is a means by which we give God consent to intervene in our circumstances, and God could not find anyone to intervene on behalf of Israel, as we saw in Ezekiel. 22. And so he removed from among them, and they were besieged and attacked by their enemies and taken captive. It should be obvious then that God cannot force himself upon those who do not want him. He himself gave mankind the freedom of choice. And when we insist on choosing another way rather than his way, he will plead for years, he will woo us, he will draw us, he will beg us even not to leave him. Because he's concerned about us. But at some point he has to leave us to reap what we have sown. The people of Israel were no exception to this. For example, we read in Deuteronomy 32, 17 that they sacrificed unto devils, not to God. In Psalm 106 verse 37, it says they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood end of quote so we can see the depths to which they went even in sacrificing their children in the fire to demons so typically when a person or a nation turns away from god to practice the idolatrous worship of heathenism it is said that god turns from them but it should be evident that it is man who turns from god not god from man And this is stated many ways in scripture in different ways such as God delivering them up or giving them up or turning his face from them. The act of leaving people up to what they insist on having. And yet the purpose of God in this is not so that they be destroyed but so that by reaping the evil results of their own sowing they will be led to realize that this is all happening because they have rejected him and to cause them to run back to him. We see this principle outlined, illustrated in Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 18. Moses had led the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years, and now he's getting close to his time of death. And God is saying to Moses, Moses, you know what? You have been a faithful servant. When you pass on, these people are going to go and adopt the ways of the heathen nations around them, and I will hide my face from them. Notice how it's written. Deuteronomy 31, from 16 to 18. The Lord said unto Moses, Behold, you shall sleep with your fathers, and these people will rise up and go after the gods of the strangers of the land, where they are going to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. So that they will say in that day, notice, are not these evils coming upon us because our God is not among us? Notice, not because God is doing it to them, but because he has left them alone. Verse 18, and I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they have done in that they are turned unto other gods. So yes, dear friends, the Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, not from God. But he that sows to the spirit shall from the spirit, that means now from God, reap life everlasting. There is a principle of sowing and reaping, dear friends. So much of what happens in the world is not according to God's doing or God's will even, even though he gets blamed. The Bible refers to Satan as the God of this world meaning the one behind all the wickedness taking place in the world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And we will pick this up some more another time and go a little further with this. But understand, dear friends, God is light. God is life. He only gives life, but with the understanding that we have the ability to reject that life if we choose to do so. To reject life is to embrace death. And that is what the scripture means when it says, I placed before you life and death. In other words, God is saying, I set before you life. But if you reject me, then you are rejecting life, which means what are you choosing? You're choosing death. So obviously, he longs for us to choose life. But ultimately, it is up to us to decide. It rests upon our choice. Keep trusting, dear friends. May God bless you all. Love you all. Have a wonderful week. May God bless you all. Love you all.